Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love. Well, howdy, everybody. This is John Michael. All things are possible with God, and we're doing our series not on Duck Dynasty, Monk Dynasty. And it ain't ZZ Top, baby, it's ZZ Talbot. <laughs> and we're going to be looking at how the monastic dynasty really began to spread west. We're going to be looking at St. Jerome, and we're going to be looking at St. John Cassian. See you back here. Well, howdy, folks. We are going to be looking at Monk Dynasty. This first half of this segment, we're going to be looking at St. Jerome. St. Jerome. Second part, we're going to look at St. John Cassian. Both had a powerful influence on the church and on the West. St. Jerome, of course, is the one who translated Scripture into Latin, and he did that from a monastic base. And St. John Cassian is the one who had such an influence on the monasticism of St. Benedict of Nursia, who is the father of Western monasticism. So let's take a look first at St. Jerome. Now, he lived from 347 to 420 A.D., thereabouts, and he was born in Dalmatia. That's, that's across the, the sea from Italy in what today is Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and all, that whole area. So that's where he was born. But very quickly, he went through a conversion. Again, like so many do, they start out, you know, secular and kind of worldly, and they go through a conversion. And many of them, when they do that, they wanted to get with those who were really radical for Christ. And the ones who were really radical for Christ at that time were the monks. So St. Jerome goes and lives as a hermit in Syria. Wow. So he lives as a, as a hermit and an ascetic in Syria, getting, again, radical, but not fanatical, learning how to be grounded so that he can reach high, learning how to be rooted. The word radical means rooted. He doesn't just want to be a religious fanatic. Religious fanaticism is such a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's one of the enemies of world peace today. Look at it. Fanatics 
and fundamentalists of any religion begin fighting with people who aren't like them and they create war, war, hostility. So Jerome really wanted to try to avoid that, so he lives as a hermit and as an ascetic. From there, he makes his way to Constantinople, and he places himself under the leadership of Gregory Nazianzen. Gregory of Nazianzen is, is one of the great Cappadocian uh, church fathers, and, and, and Jerome places himself under Gregory so that he can be schooled and educated in Scripture. Jerome is the one who gave us the statement, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Wow. Say that with me. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Isn't that cool? You know, early monasticism was so biblical, so biblical. The first monks in Egypt, and as they spread, they prayed all 150 psalms every day. We talked about St. Pacomius in earlier programs. And St. Pacomius, your novitiate was, if you weren't a Christian, to become a Christian. And then you had to learn and memorize the Psalter and the New Testament by memory, by heart. Isn't that cool? Don't, don't tell me that these early monks were not biblical. No. And remember, the Bible came out of the early church. <laughs> it's Catholic. It's our book. came forth from the life of the community. So, 2 Timothy, uh, look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. He says, But you... Paul, speaking to Timothy, remain faithful to what you have learned and believed. Because, get this, you know from whom you learned it. So that is apostolic tradition. And then he goes on to say, and that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are capable of giving you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now get this. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that one who belongs to God may be competent and equipped for every good work. There's some powerful lessons right in that Scripture about Scripture. The first thing is scripture, the word uh, uh, is graphe, 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 as in writing, graphe. And it's united, not just scripture, it's not sola scriptura, it's not scripture by itself. It's scripture in the context of those who bring it to him. So there's scripture and apostolic tradition. We also know that one of the words here for inspired means God breathed. The word is actually theonustos. Theonustos. And it comes from theos, which means God, and neo, which means breath, which is similar to the word pneuma, where we get the word spirit. So scripture must be united with apostolic tradition, and it must be united with the Spirit of God. Isn't that cool? I love it. So, he places himself under Gregory Nazianzen so he can be trained 
in that whole tradition of Scripture. He then moves to Rome, and when he goes to Rome, he's placed uh, kind of at the service of Pope Damasus. And Pope Damasus, uh, he, he wants him to begin translating the Greek Septuagint, so all the Old Testament that was really in use in the time of Christ uh, in the Jewish world, was written in Greek. And many of the New Testament quotes come back, or go back, to the Greek Septuagint. So Greek was falling out of favor. People were beginning to speak the vulgar language, the street language, Latin. So Pope Damasus wants Jerome to take his skill, his knowledge, and now his training in Scripture and his training in the monastic way, and to apply all that to translating the Greek Scriptures into Latin. And he starts to work. But while he's in Rome... He begins, Jerome starts to have women problems. And I'm not talking about him fooling around. He had the other problem. He was so radical and and so on fire, he began converting all these women. All these women. And so rich ladies and their daughters begin to say, we want to get that radical. We want to live this monastic way. We want to live for God and God alone. Monos is the word in Greek. So... He says, okay, I'll help you out. Well, the people in Rome got upset. And one of the girls took it too far. She fasted literally herself to death. She was just a young girl. It wasn't Jerome's fault. She took things too far, but they turned on Jerome. So Jerome, <laughs> he had to get out of town. <laughs> you ever heard the say, get out of town? Well, he had to get out of town. So he and these women begin to go on pilgrimage. First place they go is back to Syria, around Antioch, where he had began his life as a hermit and as an ascetic. And then they go to the Holy Land, and they go to the holy sites. So that's pretty cool. And then they go to Egypt to go down to the land of St. Antony of the Desert, St. Pacomius. It's not enough just to read it. You have to get the life of it. They became pilgrims. They wanted to get the living experience of this way of life. And then they went back to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, they started a monastery. And in that monastery, there was a monastery for men and a monastery for women next to it. And St. Jerome spent his last 34 years his last 34 years in a hermit cell in Bethlehem. And it was there in, the, in this environment of intense prayer, union with God, community, being radical but not fanatical, discovering fundamentals without becoming a fundamentalist, that Jerome finally translated from Hebrew the Old Testament into Latin. And that's where we get our Vulgate. It's the, it's the basis for much of the scripture development in the Western Church because it goes from Hebrew into Latin and it's from that that we begin to share it. So Jerome's lesson to us is this. Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. We must be a biblical people to be fully 
Catholic, Catholicos, universal, full, Christians, Christianas, like Christ. Jesus, help us to know your word, and may your word set us free. All things are possible with God. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Savior. For he has looked with mercy on my loneliness, and my name will be forever exalted. And his mercy will reach from age to age. And holy, folks this is John Michael welcome back we're looking at monk dynasty and we're looking at how two great saints brought monasticism in a very really powerful way to the west the first we looked at was Saint Jerome especially with his importance and his impact on scripture and scripture uh, learning the scripture the second that we're going to look at now is Saint John Cassian most people haven't heard of Saint John Cassian but he had a huge impact on the rule of Saint Benedict he wrote his famous institutes about monastic life and the conferences of the desert fathers so let's go through his life real quick and then we're going to take a look at the eight vices which predate the seven capital or cardinal sins as we understand them in the West. St. John Cassian was born in 360 AD in Romania. Isn't it interesting? A lot of these guys come from up there and then they make the journey, and he did as well, into the Middle East and into Egypt. So uh, St. John Cassian, he died in 435 AD in Marseille, which is really, he founded the monastery of St. Victor and had a huge impact on St. Vincent of Lorenz, which he founded a monastery right close to the Cannes Film Festival on a little island off the south of France. So he ended up there. Let's take a look at some of his life. He he entered, when when he really got serious about his life with Christ, he went to a hermitage near Bethlehem. So we heard about St. Jerome in the last segment, how he ended up dying in Bethlehem, founding a monastery there. St. John Cassian goes into a hermitage 
in Bethlehem, places himself under an abbot. He lives there for three years, and then one of his brother monks, Germanus, they, they get the itch. They say, you know, it's great to be here in the Holy Land. We love being in the land of Jesus. But we're living this monastic ideal, which kind of got sent up to here from Hilarion and, and guys like that from Egypt, the land of St. Antony of the Desert and St. Pacomius. So we want to go down there. They got permission to go down there. They were supposed to just go down there for a few years and learn and study. Well, they went down there and they lived for 15 years. <laughs> yeah, not very obedient, but it was a, for, in God's providence, it was a happy disobedience because they were able to collect. They were able to, to interview. They were able to live with all these guys, not just to read about them, but to rub shoulders with them for 15 years. And consequently, Cassian was able to write down the conferences of some of the great fathers of Eastern Egyptian monasticism. And he was able to write down the institutes. Uh, some scholars question whether or not he actually got uh, to the south or to upper Egypt with St. Pacomius, but he interviewed a lot of the guys that had lived there, and he was able to write down uh, what is monastic life, how is it lived? So you have the spirituality from the conferences, you have the monastic life from the institutes. During those 15 years, uh, he, got, he got into the sands, the desert sands of Egypt. But then uh, a heresy broke out called anthropomorphism, as anthropos, anthropos, or man, or humanity. And what anthropomorphism was, was assigning God very literally that he has hands and feet and so on and an arm. Well, God incarnate in Jesus has a body, has a flesh, but the transcendent God does not have hands and feet and arms and legs. So they felt that that was a real problem. It was spreading like wildfire. It eventually destroyed Egypt and Egyptian monasticism uh, in the short term. So they fled. Where did they go? Well, they went to Constantinople, and in Constantinople, he was ordained a deacon, So, because he, he was scholarly, and he'd lived this holy life, so they ordained him a deacon. But then there was a problem, uh, as often happened, uh, when emperors and patriarchs would, would get into control, in and out of power, and there was an exile of the archbishop who ordained him a deacon. So, St. John Cassian fled then to Rome and he placed himself under Pope Innocent I and uh, spent some time there and as, as the Pope began to talk he says you know you need to write all this stuff down we need to bring the wisdom of Egyptian monasticism into the West and so at that point in time St. John Cassian was given a commission to go into Gaul, into what today we call the south of France, and to found a monastery. And he founded a monastery called the Abbey of St. Victor. And the Abbey of St. Victor was, as most of them were in those days, a double monastery. There were monks that were in one part of the monastery and nuns who were in another part of the monastery. And it became a huge success. The neat thing to remember about St. John Cassian is that his institutes and conferences had a huge effect on all future monasticism in the West. Huge. And St. Benedict of Nursia 
says, my little rule is just a little rule for beginners. If you want to really read about the real deal, go read St. Basil, his, his rule, and go read the institutes and conferences. All scholars believe that he's referring to the institutes and conferences of St. John Cassian. Well, as St. John Cassian wrote the Institutes and the Conferences, he, he really brought not only an organization of monasticism, like for the rule of St. Benedict in later centuries, he brought a spirituality. How cool is that? So he talked about Hezekiah, Hezekiah, which means sacred stillness. Again, we talked earlier about a, a still pond. When, when a pond is agitated, it's, it stirs up the sediment. You can't see through the pond. It's all muddy, and the, and, the, and the top of the pond is all fractured. It can't really reflect an image. When a pond is still, the sediment falls to the bottom. You can look into the water. You can see what's there, and, and the surface of the pond becomes reflective like a mirror to reflect the image of God. So being still, sacred stillness, so important. And one of the things you discover is what your thoughts are really doing. So that brought in the whole uh, teaching of the logizomai, the logizomai, the thoughts. St. John Cassian, along with Evagrius, Evagrius uh, brought the teaching on the eight thoughts. And St. John Cassian really brought it even further into the West and expanded it. So I want to go through these eight thoughts because they have great psychological I think, uh, wisdom that we can still apply to our life today. He says there are eight thoughts. They are gluttony, sexual sin is the second one, avarice, or the need to control, anger, bitterness, boredom, self-glorification, and pride. Out of these eight, he says there are three that lead the way. From the eight come all the other thoughts. And remember, what you think in your heart, you will become. So, thoughts are important. The battle for the soul is in the mind, to have the mind of Christ. The three that lead the way are surprisingly gluttony and avarice and self-glorification. And the, the psychology of this is kind of like this. Gluttony is giving in to little sensual sins. He defines it as eating between meals, eating when you're not hungry. Eat when you're hungry, eat till you're full, but don't eat just to eat because that you're trying to fill up a space that only God can fill. So gluttony is the small sensual sin. When you engage and indulge in this, it will lead you to bigger sensual sins. That's where fornication or sexual indulgence comes in. Then comes avarice, the need to control, to have stuff and to control other people. And when you don't get the food you want, the sex you want, or the control you want in life, what comes next? You get angry. When anger isn't healed through forgiveness, you get bitter. And bitterness begins to poison your whole life. And you see the glass is half empty, never half full. And you end up losing your joy. And then after bitterness, you get bored. Oh, another day with Jesus. Oh, whoop-de-doo. Boredom. And then comes self-glorification. The need to be recognized, noticed, affirmed all the time. I'm not talking about healthy affirmation. I'm talking about the bad stuff. And then last comes pride. 
There's great wisdom there, isn't there? Let's be sure to be still, to really see what's going on in our thoughts, and make sure that we have the mind of Jesus, which is always self-emptying. Jesus, I open myself to you this day. Change my mind. Change my heart. Help me to spread your gospel from east to west and from west to east. All things are possible with God. Consider how the lilies grow They do not spin And they do not weave Yet I tell you now not even Solomon in all of his splendor was arrayed like any one of these. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and the wealth of his righteousness for wherever your treasure lies there will you find your heart For your life, for your body What to eat, what to wear Or what you will do for tomorrow Seek out instead His heavenly kingdom And the rest upon the earth In its own time will follow Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at breadboxmedia.com.